Let's take the Word of God. Would you please turn with me to uh, the book of Acts and chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> As you're turning there here, we're going to begin here in just a moment in reading in Acts chapter 19, but we have to have in view, uh, in the previous chapter there are uh, summary verses about chapter 18. In, uh, if you notice with me in Acts 18, verse 22 and 23, we've already looked or read through those verses. It said in the previous chapter, And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, that's the church that was at Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. Now it's northward, but um, Jerusalem sat on a hill, and so everything was downward from Jerusalem. He went down to Antioch, that's Antioch of Syria, not Pisidia in Asia Minor, but Syria. And then after he had spent some time there, so that again is his, we could refer to Antioch as his sending church, the church that sent him out as a missionary. And so he's come back now home from his second missionary journey. And he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia. Now that's Asia Minor. Uh, we talked about the churches there that were established in uh, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, all those churches in Asia Minor, that's the areas of Galatia and Phrygia, in order, strengthening all the disciples. So that's a summary of Paul's third missionary journey, which we read now in Acts chapter 19. And so if you turn there in Acts 19, we'll begin here reading in verse 1 in just a moment. And so we're uh, now on Paul's third missionary journey, and uh, we have in mind the summary of Acts chapter 19, verse 22 and 23. And I want us to think here because, and I haven't mentioned this, but I think it's important for us to try to think about the circumstances of what happened there. H.C. Uh, Hervey, he estimates that it took Paul at least, because when we read in Ephesians, we're going to begin here, he's in Ephesus. So from Antioch of Syria all the way to Ephesus, he estimated that it, would have, it took Paul approximately six months. I want you to think about that. Six months, the journey from Antioch of Syria to uh, Ephesus. The distance, if you just... Uh, I, I googled it, actually. I googled now. It's not called Antioch and Ephesus now. There's different names, but you can find those. It's over a thousand miles away. Now, let me give you an example here. If you were to walk today from Wilmington, Delaware, to Miami, Florida, it would be about the same distance if you were to walk. Uh, it would take, if you did this, it would take you three months if you walked five hours every day. For three months, you would reach Miami, Florida, if you, you could cut it to two months if you walked eight hours every day for the next two months. Now I want you to think about that because I'm trying to illustrate the point to show us here that this was not just a flippant decision from the Apostle Paul to take a journey all through all Asia Minor to hit those cities and churches that were already established and then to end up in Ephesus uh, and so we may casually read the summary statement in Acts chapter 18, verse 21 and 20, uh, 22 and 23, without ever thinking about the practical implications of Paul's decision to take this third missionary journey. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. 
And on this journey, he went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia, which would include the cities of Derbe and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch of Pisidia, where the churches had already been established. And so what I'm saying to us today is, what is our level of sacrifice to the Lord? How many of us would be willing to take a similar journey? And what I'm saying to us is today, to take that journey from Antioch to Ephesus today, and those cities today, take us a couple hours. Six months of walking and traveling. And so I think that uh, no doubt we are today the recipients of those in the first century who took the Word of God very seriously uh, when it came to establishing churches and propagating the gospel. So I'm just saying that to you to encourage you to keep serving the Lord and to challenge you to greater service. Now let's begin reading here in Acts 19 verse 1. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word out of respect and reverence for the Lord. Acts chapter 19, verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And and they said, Unto John's baptism. They said, Paul, then said Paul, uh, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Uh, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were, uh, but when divers were hardened and believed not, they spake evil of that way before the multitude. And he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And they continued by the space of two years, so that, uh, so that. All they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the disease departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. I want to bring your attention very quickly here to verse 10. He says, at the end he says, So that all they which dwelt in Asia, now that would be... Asia Minor, that huge region. You think uh, the more eastern place that Paul has been is Derby, Lystra there, and the westernmost place would be Ephesus, where he is right now. All of Asia, notice, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so I'd like to preach here a message that I've entitled, The Hearing of the Word, the hearing of the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to study your Word. And Lord, would you uh, please continue to use this book in our hearts and our minds as we work our way in our study of this wonderful book that uh, documents uh, the record of what happened in the first century and the great work that took place there. And Lord, our desire is to be uh, like the first century churches Uh, that we may exhibit the same characteristics that are found in those believers in the work that is there. 
And so, Lord, do a work in our hearts that we would move closer to New Testament Christianity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Word of God always causes people to respond. There are no neutral parties when it comes to the hearing of the Word of God. And by the end of the text that we just read, we're going to come here to really two different responses to the Word of God. There is always a response, and the response to the Word of God, whether it is negative or good, always has consequences. It always does. And so we'll look at that by the time we reach the end of this chapter. But I want to begin here by looking at this chapter and considering here where Paul is finding himself in this third missionary journey. We read again, really uh, coming from chapter 18, we already read about Apollos who was reached there in Ephesus by Aquila and Priscilla and who was encouraged more perfectly in the way of the Lord. He ends up going to Corinth and preaching and establishing the believers there in Corinth. And so Apollos was at Corinth. Paul here, he is passing through the upper coast He comes now to the city of Ephesus. Now, back in chapter 19, remember he had just gone through Ephesus temporarily. He had preached in the synagogue there. Aquila and Priscilla had remained there in Ephesus, and he continued his journey to Caesarea. And so now he comes back to Ephesus. And I'm interested, though, in the city of Ephesus because I didn't really talk about the city of Ephesus while Aquila and Priscilla were there. But Ephesus was the capital of, of, uh, and one of the largest city of the province of Asia Minor. So think about Asia Minor. It was the capital city. Uh, it, it was a key coastal city on the west side of Asia. Now, today would be present-day Turkey. I begin to be interested. I look at a map. And uh, by the way, the seven churches that you read about in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 are all in Asia Minor. The cities are not called by those names anymore, such as Ephesus and Pergamos and Laodicea, but those cities are still there today. Some of those monuments that you read about uh, are still found today. And so I began looking on maps, and then I I got interested. I thought, are there any missionaries in Turkey today? And I found actually two. There are two uh, Baptist uh, missionaries that are there in Turkey. One of them I actually went to Bible college with. I didn't even know he was in Turkey. And so I, I, I just got burdened for that place. I think about all those churches that were there. Where are they today? They're no longer there. And so I, I prayed, I spent some time praying that God would raise up laborers to go to that part of the world. By the way, it is an open country. Turkey is an open country. You can go as a missionary there. Uh, you can even register with the government, although it's 99% Muslim, you can register with the government and start an independent Baptist church in Turkey today. And so I'm praying that God would raise up laborers there. But in the time of the Romans, Ephesus really bore the title, the first and the greatest metropolis of Asia. It was known for its theater, uh, which was the largest in the world at that time, capable of containing over 50,000 spectators. As many other cities of that time, Ephesus was morally and religiously corrupt. The saddest part of, uh, of that is that the deep moral corruption was actually found within its religion. Uh, The most influential temple in Ephesus was the temple of Diana. If you read about Greek mythology, the goddess Diana would be preeminent in Greek Greek religion. And and, um, the the temple here, the temple Diana, was numbered actually among the seven wonders of the world in the ancient world. Uh, However, the temple of Diana was a place of deep immorality. 
the temple was actually inhabited by hundreds of prostitutes who were there basically to satisfy the lusts of men in the name of religion. It was not just, by the way, a small segment of the population that was given to idolatry in Ephesus. The text itself here in Acts chapter 19, it tells us that the city itself was a worshiper of the goddess Diana. Notice with me in this very chapter, down in verse 34. Now we'll get there, but I want to give you a little bit of context for the city of Ephesus. Notice with me verse 34. It says here, But when they knew that, the, that, uh, that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? They had, basically, they believed that Literally, the statue that was in the temple, Diana, literally fell down from heaven. Notice verse uh, 36. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. So even the clerk of the city said, we know that every Ephesian is a worshiper of Diana. So this was not a small segment of the population that engaged in the temple worship of Diana. It was the entire city. Uh, much like you th- see in Athens when he says the whole city was wholly given to idolatry, we could say the same of Ephesus, that the whole city uh, was given to idolatry. And that's not what, what God or Paul said, that's what they said themselves of their own city. Now Paul's ministry here in Ephesus, according to uh, later chapter 20 and verse 31, uh, lasted three years. So as far as my recollection is concerned, as far as his free ministry was concerned, that this was the longest ministry that the Apostle Paul had. And we read here uh, of really the first group of people that the Apostle Paul encountered there in Ephesus. It doesn't seem that this group was met in the synagogue. It seemed that these were uh, known as disciples of John the Baptist. So notice with me here in verse 1 and 2. The Bible says here, Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Now, the word disciple here, we know that Christ had disciples, but the general use of the term is a pupil, a learner, someone who is a follower of a particular person. And so these disciples, noted, are specifically in verse 2 linked to John the Baptist. Notice, He said unto them, these disciples, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto Him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Now we're talking here about not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist. Uh, We read him early on in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But let's ask ourselves here this question. These disciples of John the Baptist, they no doubt they remembered the preaching of John the Baptist. Some of them were probably followers of John the Baptist before he died. He was executed. Uh, but the, the, the baptism of John here, he refers to the baptism of John as the baptism of repentance. And so these disciples evidently were anticipating, had anticipated the baptism of the Holy Ghost because John the Baptist spoke of that baptism. So that's why here Paul, when he's referring to verse 2 as, Have you received the Holy Ghost? And he's talking about now the subject of baptism, the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of the Holy Ghost. 
They are familiar with that because John the Baptist himself spoke of that baptism. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 3 so that we, uh, we see here what John the Baptist preached. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. According, by the way, to the prophecies of the Old Testament, you find that in the book of Joel, the book of Malachi, uh, that uh, uh, Christ was not only prophesied, but the forerunner of Christ was prophesied. And we know that that is John the Baptist. Now in Matthew chapter 3, uh, notice with me, in, um, let's begin reading in verse 7. We know John the Baptist has been preaching. Notice Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, that's John the Baptist, saw many Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. By the way, repentance to what? Repentance before Christ comes. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So notice here, John the Baptist was preaching repentance unto whose coming, unto Christ's coming. And then he announced that Jesus Christ would baptize them with the Holy Ghost and with fire. You could read the same reference in Luke chapter 3. You could read all of John chapter 1. And you can look at the ministry of John the Baptist. It was clear. John the Baptist was there to, uh, uh, to encourage the people to repent in light of the coming Messiah. And by the way, when the Messiah came in John chapter 1, John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ, and he said what to the, to the multitude? He says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. So these disciples evidently, they believed in John the Baptist's preaching and teaching, and they also believed that the Holy Ghost was going to come. But they not, had not heard that He had already come. Well, who? The Holy Ghost. They, they had not heard that the baptism of the Holy Ghost had already taken place uh, there um, in Acts chapter 2. And uh, by the way, let's go turn with me, if you have your place there, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Because it's not just what John the Baptist said, it's also what Jesus Christ said Himself. By the way, when Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, He speaks of the Holy Ghost that's going to come, He refers back to John the Baptist's ministry and to John the Baptist's preaching. Notice with me in Acts chapter 1. Now, by the way, this is after the Lord's resurrection, before His ascension. Uh, the disciples here, He reminds the disciples of the preaching of John the Baptist, which included a future baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so notice Acts 1. Uh, let's just begin reading in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So when we think about Matthew chapter 3, John the baptism, uh, the baptism of repentance, because Christ is coming, 
When he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And Jesus Christ here, he brings up the, the preaching of John the Baptist. And he says that the, this, uh, this uh, baptism of the Holy Ghost is not many days away. All right. So, they had not heard, evidently, that the preaching of John the Baptist had already been fulfilled. That's what they had not heard. In other words, I, you have to, if they believed in John the Baptist's preaching, they had to believe, first of all, to repent at the coming of Jesus Christ. They had to believe that Jesus Christ the Messiah was coming. And whether they were there on that day when John the Baptist announced Jesus Christ, I tend to believe that they did not, they were not there, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh the sin of the world. That's the man that John the Baptist had been preparing and announced. And evidently, they also had not heard of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so the question here is, what did they believe? Because the Bible tells us in Acts 19 verse 2, He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Now the question is, what did they believe? Well, I think we could say uh, they probably were baptized by John the Baptist or by some disciples of John the Baptist. They had believed that Messiah was coming, and they also believed that the Holy Ghost was going to come eventually, that there was going to be a Pentecost moment. And so they believed that it was coming, but they had not believed in Christ and that believed that that had already happened. You see? Notice in verse 4. How do we know that? Because in verse 4, Paul says, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So they had believed in John's message, but evidently they had not believed on him that should come after him. Does that make sense? Was John the Baptist right in his preaching? Of course he was. So what they had believed in was not wrong, it was just incomplete. Does that make sense? These people were not rejected of Christ. They were not rejectors of what John the Baptist had said. They had received and had believed John the Baptist, but their belief was incomplete. And so, believing in John's message, they had never, however, believed on Christ Jesus, uh, identified who the Messiah was. John the Baptist, remember, had commanded, that's what Paul says, he commanded that they should believe on him which should come after him. And so these disciples had been waiting on John's message to be fulfilled, but having never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the message of John the Baptist, in essence, was twofold. Repent, ye sinners. And believe on Jesus Christ. That was his message. Right? Because he said, repent of your sin, and when Christ come, believe on Christ. That was his message. Now repent, ye sinners. Why? Because you're under the wrath of God. And believe on Christ. Why? So that he can take away your sin. That's what John the Baptist said when Jesus came. So understand, the message of John the Baptist was twofold. Repent and believe. By the way, that was the message of uh, of, of Paul himself, who is going to say a little later in this book of Acts, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our still our message today. Why do we need to repent? Because we're sinners. We're under the wrath of God. Why do we need to believe on Jesus Christ? Because He alone can take away our sins. And that's what John the Baptist said. 
When Jesus Christ came, he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh the sin of the world. You see, you have to have those two elements to be saved. There is no understanding, there is no concept, true understanding of why you need Jesus Christ unless you recognize yourself to be a sinner undone under the wrath of God and the enemy of God. But it's not enough just to repent. Evidently, these people had repented. They acknowledged themselves. They had been baptized unto repentance. They had proved themselves to be, uh, to be guilty, to be under the wrath of God, to be the enemies of God. And so they repented before God, and they showed that by being baptized by John the Baptist. But they had never taken the second step, which was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's good to be broken over your sin and to acknowledge that you're under the wrath of God, but you must take the next step and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Acknowledgement of sin and repentance is not enough for salvation. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the message of John the Baptist was an incomplete message without Jesus Christ. Now, notice with me in verse 5. And so, he says, uh, when they heard this, notice, no hesitation. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these men, in essence, they were baptized twice. They were baptized by John the Baptist. By the way, that baptism was a baptism of immersion. That's what the name means. The word baptize means to immerse, to dunk, to plunge. It does not mean to sprinkle. It does not mean to pour. It means to baptize. And they did that in the river. And so they were baptized by John the Baptist. By the way, that baptism was incomplete. Was it a good baptism? It was a good baptism. It was preparatory for Christ. But when Christ comes, they had to be baptized in the name of Jesus. They were not there to identify with John the Baptist. They should be identifying with Jesus Christ. And so their identity from that moment on here in Ephesus would no longer be with John the Baptist. Their identity would be with Jesus Christ. And by the way, that was the goal of John the Baptist. You remember what he said? There is somebody that's come after me who is greater than I. Even John the Baptist, when Jesus Christ came to him, he, he, he said, I have need to be baptized of thee. And John the Baptist, what do you mean baptized of me? I need to be baptized of you. He was talking about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That he was, had been announcing. Well, it wasn't time for that. And so uh, those men here did not hesitate. Why? Because they had already believed in John the Baptist. There was, I believe, in those men in Ephesus, there was an expectation of the coming of the Messiah. There was an expectation of this baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so when Paul announced them to them, they were ready for it. And they followed the Lord in that believer's baptism. So they're identifying with Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, I, I believe here it's important to, to make a distinction between someone who receives the Holy Ghost and someone who has the Holy Ghost manifested on him. Uh, that's what the, the which is like, what we find in Acts chapter 2. Remember in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost came upon men. There was a, a fire over their head, cloven tongues, and they spake with tongues. And so this is, a, in a sense... It's interesting because that's what they were anticipating. And so Paul, by laying hands on them, he shows to them, like at the first, that this has been fulfilled with the Holy Ghost coming upon them. And so they see that this had already been fulfilled. Uh, and by the way, it's important to understand when we think about the book of Acts, we, we don't need to experience uh, those sign gifts that God gave to the early church. 
we understand, by the way, turn with me to uh, the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we have a, a clear statement here with regards to the apostles. Notice in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, notice verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? God also bearing them witness, who the apostles both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His, God's own will. So when we read about the book of Acts, understand that the message of the gospel was already confirmed. It's already been validated. We don't need to, to have the gospel message validated again. And by the way, that was an apost uh, apostolic era sign, gift. It doesn't need to be done again and again and again. The message of the gospel has already been validated by signs and wonders. It doesn't need to be validated again. And by the way, if the miracles and the signs were there to prop up the gospel, how much greater then is the gospel than the miracles that they did? If that was the purpose of the miracles, to hold up the gospel. So we covered that already in the book of Acts. By the way, if you have questions about that, I, would, I preach messages through Acts chapter 2. Uh, and then also when uh, that happened in the house of the Gentiles later in Acts chapter 9, I believe, I would encourage you to listen to those messages if you have questions about that. So I don't want to get into that again, but I would encourage you to listen to those if you have not. Now, let's move on here in verse 7. He says this, And all the men were about twelve. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting here, why he gave their number? Now, these were the disciples of John the Baptist who just believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, were baptized, um, in the name of Jesus Christ by immersion, but also were uh, received that baptism of the Holy Ghost that was prophesied. Uh, they were able to experience that here. Now, why give the number? Well, I think first we can see that there are 12, which is like uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ, those who followed Him. But also, I think, secondly, we know that they are 12. It shows us here that really the ministry of Paul in Ephesus would flourish with 12 men. Uh, it is evident here that God gives us a number because we think about the work in Ephesus and we read the statement in verse 10 that says that by that time all of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how did all Asia hear the word of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's not just by the words of Paul. Other people had to be involved. Paul, it is not physically possible for one man to be able to speak to every single person in Asia but if you talk about other men being involved, at least 12, and then that multiplies and that grows and that grows, well, no doubt Asia could be reached in that, time, that period of three years. You know, God desires to use human instrumentality to get the Word of God out, to preach the Gospel. And here, I believe God just tells us here, this work in Ephesus began with 12 men. Now people say, well, what about Apollos? Well, Apollos has been traveling. He's not there in Ephesus at that time. So no doubt there's Aquila and Priscilla. There are other believers there. But evidently these men who were disciples of John the Baptist were evidently preaching about John the Baptist. And now their ministry changes from preaching about John the Baptist to now preaching about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And by the way, the, church, the work of God will flourish 
here at First Day Baptist Church with those who desire to be involved in His work. Uh, you know, we have to firmly believe uh, that the work of God is not accomplished by one preacher that stands behind the pulpit in the church, that God accomplishes work through every individual believer that's in the church. Now let me prove that to you because we've already seen that in the book of Acts. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, now remember Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen preaches before the Sanhedrin council. He's stoned, he's left for dead. Uh, he, he dies. Uh, notice in Acts chapter 8, Verse 1, the Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, the death of Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and holding men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, I believe it's important to think about the context here is that verse 1 says, at that time great persecution was against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except who? The apostles. So you know who was involved in preaching the gospel everywhere? Everybody except the apostles. That's what the Bible says. Now we might think that this should be reversed. Not so in the work of God. I want to encourage you, you personally have a responsibility to give the gospel to those who do not know it. You and I, we all have that responsibility. And by the way, that's the best way for multiplication to take place. If you have an army here of, of 30, 40, 50 people, it's much more effective than just me by myself trying to individually reach a city with the gospel of Christ. And so here we have 12 disciples of John the Baptist who become disciples of not Paul, Jesus Christ, who preach the gospel of Christ throughout all the regions. And by the end of this chapter, we see that the entirety of Asia has heard the gospel. And if they were able to do it that time, why can we not do it during our time? When we have all the resources that we have at our disposal, uh, then may the Lord help us. Now, we read in our text here in verse 8 that uh, Paul spent some time in the synagogue. Evidently, he was disputing, persuading the things of the kingdom of God. He was there, uh, the Bible says, for three months. For the first three months in Ephesus, uh, Paul was persuading, disputing in the synagogue. Verse 9 and 10, we see that he goes from the synagogue for three months to being in the school of one Tyrannius for two years. So evidently, it seems that Paul got kicked out of the synagogue or because the disputing and the persuading was not being effective in the synagogue, he decided to basically form a, an open forum like the synagogue was and to invite people. And we know that at the school of Tyrannus, he was also there uh, disputing, the Bible says, daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So three months in the synagogue, two years disputing in the school of Tyrannus. Now, what I'm interested in here is, though, is there's, there's two groups of people from the ministry in Ephesus. There are those who believed, and there are those who did not believe. Now, what I'm interested in here, though, is the progression. I want you to notice with me uh, verse 8, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, verse 9, But when divers 
were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. Now, isn't it interesting here? Now, there are some who believed, but evidently here the other side is there are many who did not believe. And because those who did not believe uh, spake against Paul, he had to find another location to preach the gospel, the school of Tyrannus. But I'm interested here in what develops from those who believe and what develops from those who do not believe. And that's why I said at the beginning that the Word of God always has two responses. There is really no one that is really neutral when it comes to the gospel. The gospel demands a response. And notice here that the first group is those who do not believe. Now verse 9 tells us that some believe not. And I want you to see that there is a progression in what happens when there is unbelief. What happens? Well, the first thing that happens from unbelief... So again, Paul was in the synagogue. He was persuading and disputing the things of God... Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ presenting that to them. And so what happened, there's a group within that synagogue who evidently did not believe, but the Bible tells us what happens because of unbelief. Verse 9 says, but when diverse were, what's the next word? Hardened. You know what unbelief does? It hardens the heart. Notice the Bible connects the hardening to what? Verse 9, but when diverse were hardened and believed not. So it attaches this hardening to the unbelief. Paul was preaching. Some people were believing, but some people were not believing. What happens to those who don't believe? They're hardened. Isn't it interesting that there is nothing neutral that happens when the gospel is preached? There are some people who would believe, and that's wonderful. But there are people who will not believe. Well, what happens in that heart that does not believe? That heart begins to be hardened. And how do we know that that heart was hardened? Notice what the Bible says. When divers were hardened and believed not, what happens? But spake evil of that way before the multitude. Ah, so there's the progression. There's an unbelief. Then there is a hardening. And then there's a speaking evil. That's the natural flow, the natural progression of those who do not believe the gospel. Isn't it interesting that those who are rejected of, of, of the gospel are not just content to say, well, I just don't believe it, leave me alone, and that's it? There's a hardening that takes place in their hearts, and then they take it to the next step, that they have to speak evil of that way. And that's exactly what they did of Paul. And by the way, they did that to the multitude, so there was two things going on. Paul was going around everywhere preaching the gospel, disputing in the school of Tyrannius. And at the same time, there was another agenda going on. What was that agenda? Trying to convince the multitude that what Paul was saying was evil. Notice, not that it wasn't right, but that it was evil. By the way, we still deal with the same today. Those who are the most vehement uh, unbelievers are those whose heart have been hardened, and we know that the heart has been hardened because they speak evil of that way, and they're trying to convince the multitude in the world that these people, these Christians, these believers in Christ are evil people. Isn't that interesting? So those who do not believe are hardened, and there is... So here is what I'm trying to tell you is there is always a consequence to unbelief. There is always a consequence to unbelief. And so I'm not going to say to somebody, if you reject Jesus Christ, God's going to strike you dead right here. I'm not going to say that. But I will say that your heart's going to be hardened. 
And then you might get to the place where your heart becomes so hard that you're going to begin to speak evil of those who are trying to point you to Christ. That's everywhere that Paul went, it seemed that that's the pattern that happened. And so the consequence of unbelief is a hardening of the heart. Uh, the consequence of the hardening of the heart is the, the, the speaking evil of Christ and of the gospel and the message of Paul. And so that's the one group. The group that did not believe, but then there's the group of those that believed. And so notice what happens in verse 9. But when divers were hardened, believed not, but spake evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them. Paul departed from who? Them in the synagogue. That's what he had been for three months. And notice, separated the disciples. Disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus, and this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so here it is. Here, here's the progression of those who believe. Those who believe become what? They become disciples. The disciple is the opposite of one who hardens his heart. The one who believes, the disciple says, Lord, I'm your servant. I will listen. I will be your pupil. I will learn from you. I will receive the instruction you have from That's the opposite, isn't it? Of the one that doesn't believe and the heart is hard. And I'm not going to listen to what he says. But those who believe, they humble themselves and say, we want to receive more teaching. We want to be instructed in the way of the Lord. And what does discipleship produce? It produces propagation. Do you see here? He, so the disciples... With the disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus, notice verse 10, And they, and this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So, they believed, those who believed became disciples, and the disciples propagated the message. Understand that the fact that all Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ was not just because of Paul's ministry but it was because of the disciples who propagated the word of the Lord. And so we understand that we all have an involvement. There's, there's two agendas going on in the world. When the gospel is preached, those who do not believe, who hearts are hardened, who speak evil of that way, and those who believe, who humble themselves before God as disciples, and who propagate the gospel of Christ. And so we are involved in one of those two agendas. And I suggest to us that if we're not involved in the believing disciples and the propagating, and it might be, it might be that we have hardened ourselves and that we are getting in the way of the work of God. Now, I, 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 I don't want to be in that position. Everything we do has an impact. It, it, it either helps the work of God or it hinders the work of God. Those who are disciples are those who help the work of God. Those who are hardened are those who hinder the work of God. By the way, the result is, all they that dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. All they that dwelled in Asia, all the dwellers, all the citizens in Asia heard. Is that our desire? Not that all accepted. You see that? But all heard. That is, therein lies our responsibility. We want all to hear. We want all to hear. So may the Lord help us as we think about the idea here, the hearing of the word. And so I know that here the two groups is those are unbelievers, they're not believers, they're 
unregenerate, but those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are believers. But I think that there is an aspect where we can make an application to us that when we come to church and we gather together, uh, that no doubt during his two years of teaching and disputing in the school of Tyrannus, there might have been those who believed that who might have gotten offended by the teaching of Paul when he was preaching the Word of God, preaching the whole counsel of God, much like people got offended when Jesus Christ preached. You remember sometimes he preached and disciples, his disciples left? The disciples of Jesus left? Why? Because the saying was too hard. And Jesus at one occasion he turned to his disciple and he says, Are you going to go too? And Peter says, Well, where will we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And so there is a potential that even those who may be considered within disciples may hear something at some point that causes them their hearts to be hardened. And the things that are heard are too hard. If it happened to Jesus Christ, who was perfect, the perfect teacher and the perfect preacher, could we not say that there's a great potential that might happen with an imperfect teacher and preacher? Of course it will. But let's put the Word of God at the forefront and say, if God says it, we will do it. We will do it. Our interest ought to be for something greater than ourselves. What was the interest here? All of Asia heard. See, if the interest is in ourselves, it's going to stop right there. But if it, the interest for the glory of God, then it, it goes beyond us. And it is a wonderful thing that we can all be involved in something that is greater than us. And so may the Lord help us as we think about the hearing of the Word.